Run DMC released My Adidas in 1986, it may have been the biggest celebrity footwear endorsement since James Dean. His favorite kicks were Jack Purcell's in the 1960s. But all that was before this guy took over. Yo, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Yo, Mike, what makes you the best player in the universe? Is it the vicious stumps? No, Mars. Is it the haircut? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes! Shoes, 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 shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? And ever since Michael Jordan, the sneaker industry has been dominated by basketball's biggest stars. Kobe Sixes, they were called the helicopters. It's the LeBron Olympic postseason nines. Oh, I'm wearing a Mari Stoudemire's. I, I love the Jordans. I'm a Jordan fan. Jordan hat. Got all the Jordans. I can't wait for the sevens to come out on the first. Jordans? Jordans. Jordans. Um, yeah, Jordans. Those are some voices from The Cage, one of Manhattan's most famous basketball courts. And later this fall, one of basketball's favorites is set to release the latest version of his shoe. The new LeBron James 10 sneakers will go on sale at the price of $315 a pair. But how have sneakers risen to this level of prominence and become symbols of culture, race, and class? To understand the history of the sneaker, we're joined by Emily Chertoff, a writer for The Atlantic who's been studying the origins of the sneaker boom. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. Emily, we should start by saying you are not a sneaker expert or or a PhD in sociology or anything crazy like that. You just got into your head that it would be interesting to look at how sneakers diverged over the years so that certain brands are worn by certain communities in America, and you decided to ask why. Is that about right? Yeah, that sounds about right to me. So let's start with Chuck Taylors, because that's where you start in your story. Chuck Taylors wore the original basketball shoes. Tell me about that. So basketball was actually invented in the late 19th century. And until about the 1920s, there was sort of a confusion about exactly what shoes to wear on the court. In the 1920s, the shoes that would become known as Chuck Taylors became popular among basketball players. And at one point, you had a young basketball player who actually just graduated from high school. His name was Charles Taylor. He actually went on to play for the Celtics. Um, And he became a shoe salesman and actually maintained that side of his career the entire time that he was playing and also then later running pro camps. And so he actually helped Converse redesign the shoe. And it became sort of the dominant uh, basketball shoe until about the mid-1960s when other models started to be introduced. But it's a pretty low-tech shoe. Um, It doesn't have the fancy features we associate with basketball sneakers that players wear today. Uh, But it was the dominant shoe on the court for almost five decades. And then tell me what started to happen in the 1960s. So in the 1960s, uh, you had the introduction of sort of more elaborate models. Leather sneakers started to enter the market. And then at that point, once there were somewhat more performance-oriented models of sneaker on the market, players started to shift their sort of interest in buying to that, and you started to see more of those appear on the court. Um, And at that point, the Chuck Taylor sort of fell out of favor, uh, and it actually was adopted basically by counterculture groups. So for instance, you see the Ramones, if you look at old photos of them, uh, often in the 70s, they're wearing Chuck Taylors. So it sort of shifted its cultural cachet to become a sneaker of the counterculture rather than a sneaker for performance. The sneakers for performance, on the other hand, started to become endorsed by particular athletes or sort of named after particular athletes. And that was when the marketing really took hold in the African in the African-American community in America. Tell me about what you found there. 
That's right. So in the 1970s, you have both Nike and Puma entering the basketball footwear market. Um, And a few years after that, they sort of figured out that they could market sneakers. And, you know, these are at that point, we're starting to get into sort of relatively high tech, high performance sneakers. They figured, hey, we can actually market these to people who will use them off the court, not just on them. Basketball already had a pretty strong cachet in African-American communities because so many of the players by the late 1960s were black. And so Nike and Puma start to have you know, basically deals with particular basketball players where a player will have a signature shoe. Um, And that means, you know, the player wears that shoe on the court uh, and then the brand sort of gets a bounce off of that. And then, you know, at a certain point, marketing accelerates because uh, sneaker companies see, oh, you know, this is actually doing really well uh, among young African-American men and young men in general. And so by the 80s, you see, you know, at that point, sneakers had actually started to be associated with rap culture. Uh, Run DMC did the first song about sneakers and later got an endorsement deal with Adidas. And this sort of reached its apex in the 80s with the Air Jordan commercials, which were very successful, very long running, uh, and really had, you know, made their primary appeal to young black men. And the Air Jordans really were sort of the pinnacle of, of, you know, the sneaker popularity. Let's bring it up to the present day. And one of the things I think we, we want to avoid here is giving the impression that, all black Americans wear a certain type of sneaker. All white Americans wear Chuck Taylors. That's not actually what's going on here, right? Consumers are savvier than that. And it really seems to depend more on who you hang out with than what particular race or ethnic background you come from. Of course. I mean, that's completely right. And I think that we have at this point sort of moved past the associations that marketing brought to the sneaker market in the 80s. You know, there's definitely an association at this point of basketball sneakers with urban culture, I would say. And so it's sort of sorted out to be uh, a little bit broader than the initial marketing would have had you believe. Emily, before we go, tell me, what shoes are you wearing? Right now, uh, I'm wearing ballet flats because I'm at work and I need to be a little bit dressed up. Come on, Emily, where are your Air Force Ones? You sound like an Air Force (laughs) One kind of girl to me. (laughs) Yeah, I actually love basketball sneakers, but they're a little bit expensive for my budget. (laughs) For all of our budgets, I think. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Emily Chertoff is a writer for The Atlantic. She's been studying the origins of the sneaker boom. Now, the price of the new LeBron James 10 sneakers was announced earlier this week at $315 a pair. Those sneakers are going to be released later this fall. And we're joined now by Jamila King. She's the sports editor at Colorlines.com. Jamila, you're a sneakerhead yourself. I am. Sneakers are my weak point, and they have been for many, many years. Okay, so you are willing to spend a couple hundred bucks on a pair of sneakers? So my girlfriend is actually cautioning me not to do that anymore, but that yes, <laughs> I have. I have. Sneakers or rent? Hmm. Right. It's a tough decision. It's a tough decision sometimes. It is. So what? what's the appeal? Did you start out as a young kid being really interested in sneakers? Or? Right. So I grew up in San Francisco uh, in the 90s playing basketball. And so I grew up at this time where there was this huge push by the NBA uh, to sort of market to young kids like myself, um, black kids, but also to capitalize on hip hop, right? Hip hop was going global. And so you had, you know, I think there's, there was a commercial with Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan uh, talking about Sprite. And I remember Jason Kidd had these really amazing sneakers. And I went and I, I begged my mom for them. And I begged my mom for some Jordans when I was in eighth grade. Um, so I definitely grew up around it. And I think that for me, playing basketball, especially being a girl, 
I really wanted sort of the status of the shoe, and the shoe was a good way to say, I'm not just a basketball player, I'm a good basketball player. We spoke to a lot of people on the streets of New York. I think they were mostly men, for the most part, down at the cage, the basketball um, sort of playground. And they had a lot to say about the status that sneakers confer. In, in our area, it's like poverty, so it's like, you know, you want them sneakers, you want to look good, you want to feel good. You know, you could tell a man by shoes. Always tell a man about his shoes. That's Mike Boyd, a 21-year-old musician from the Bronx at The Cage in Manhattan. And Jamila, I want to ask you, it seems that whether you're an adult or a teenager or buying for a child, lots of people are willing to pay $315 for these new LeBron James sneakers. Right, right. And, you know, they're mobile status symbols. And it's really easy for kids. Even if you can't afford it, you're going to save all your money to go buy these really expensive sneakers that may be $100 or $200. And you can mix and match with it. You can wear them on the train. You know what I mean? Like people will be able to see who you are and make judgments on who you are based off of what you're wearing. Do you ever think that maybe, though, we put a little bit too much importance on it? I mean, there's always every year you've got the story and it doesn't matter. It can be the black community, the white community, the Hispanic community. Some kid kills another kid for a pair of sneakers. Some kid beats another kid up for a pair of sneakers. Where do we draw the line? Where is where is the you know, it's just insane at that point. So that's tough because there is this this idea, this narrative that's been built where you have uh, the the black kids in the hood who are shooting themselves over sneakers. Um, I think that, you know, certainly violence in black communities is a problem. But I also think that you have to look at it and say that possessions in some sense are racialized and that black kids are not the only ones who are going above and beyond their means to get purchases that they really adore, right? And so I have plenty of friends who buy iPads when they already have their Kindles and their laptops. And so we have these really strong attachments to these possessions. And I mean, we live in a consumer culture. This is a capitalist society. I think that makes perfect sense. Okay, let's talk in just a couple more years. Quick example. You're a mom and your kids are like, Mom, I want that pair of $350 LeBrons. What are you going to do? You know, so it's interesting. When I was in seventh grade, my seventh grade teacher had me, I was, I wore sneakers all the time. She had me do a research paper on Nike and human rights abuses and all these things. And so I'd want my kids to know the social impacts. I'd explain to them these things. Okay. But I do know that kids are kids and they're going to want stuff. I won't buy them <laughs> for them, but maybe their grandmother will. Yeah. Right. There you go. An allowance. That was Jamila King. She's a sports editor at Colorlines.com. Jamila, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me.